Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to New Idea Investigates. Thank you for joining us. My name is Marianne Harris. I appreciate your company as we look back on a brutal crime that took place in Adelaide 13 years ago. Emma Pawelski was 30 years old when she was last seen alive on the 26th of November 2005. Her body was then found over a week later in a remote spot in the Mount Crawford Forest. Despite persons of interest, no one has ever been charged for her murder. It is a very sad story, but one Emma's mum, Sharon, wants to share with us. We warn listeners, some material may be distressing. Sharon, thank you very much for joining us. I think my first question is one that I'm sure our listeners are also asking. How hard is this for you to share with us? How hard is it to talk about today? Well, Marianne, it's very hard at times, but I always do this sort of thing for Emma because I really need to get some answers and find out what happened and maybe get a resolution to her case. It's not going to bring her back, but I feel I've got to keep plugging on for her and for my family as well. Did you think you would ever be in this situation where you would still be looking for answers more than a decade later? Oh, definitely not. I mean, at the time, of course, when I found out Emma had died, I, I well, was murdered, I was in shock. So you don't think about that sort of thought right in, initially. But um, as time went on, because I, I had, I just thought, you know, I had in my mind a suspect and I just thought it would all be very easy and it would all resolve fairly quickly. But, of course, it's not been the case. No. No, it hasn't sadly been the case. Tell us about Emma, Sharon. What what was she like, sweet, as a little girl? Tell me about life with Emma. Well, she was a real bundle of energy, very bright, cheeky, mischievous. Um, when she was little, um, a lot of my friends used to, when I go and visit them, they'd call her whirlwind Emma because she tended to sort of go into people's house, sort of rush in, and she was very inquisitive. She sort of opened drawers. She wasn't destructive, but she was nosy. She'd open drawers and want to look at things. So a lot of my friends in back in those days, when I'm talking about the 70s here, the late 70s, would actually call her Whirlwind Emma, and they all still laugh about it to this day, because she was just so full of energy. Mm. And she, as she grew older, um, yeah, she wanted, she liked, enjoyed doing drama. She always had this dream of maybe being an actress. Um, she just she was fairly bright at school, um, and she made a lot of friends. We did move a lot in the early days. That was me being um, a little bit sort of not grounded, being quite young. Mm-hmm. I was quite a young mother with her, but mm-hmm. um, she tended, seemed to really adapt to making friends. And, and right till when she died, she still had friends from school days, even though she'd been to a few schools. And uh, one of her little cute, I, I'll never forget this because it was just really sweet what she did. But she went uh, on a holiday. My parents took her when she was 12 to America for a few weeks. And 
they took her to Disneyland and on the tour that they went on, she met a, a, a lady from Sydney, a lady who was a grandmother, and she said, my granddaughter Belinda would get on so well with you, Emma, you should become pen pals. So that was what was popular in those days. So Emma started writing letters to this girl in Sydney and she wrote back and she decided, oh, I want to get to Sydney, but I don't have any money. We're being only sort of um, 12 or 13. So she wrote to this um, children's program that she used to watch called Ridgey Ditch and asked them if they'd fly Oh, my God, I remember that. Is this showing my age here? I'd better be careful about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she uh, wrote to them and they contacted her and said, well, we've decided we'll come to Adelaide and meet you and do a bit of a live telecast. So they came to Adelaide and filmed him in her home showing her pets and talking, showing her bedroom and just showing what she does at home. And then they had a live telecast with that to Sydney with Belinda in the studio in Sydney. Mm. So then Belinda was able to watch Emma talking to her and, yeah, it was quite clever, but uh, I think she was hoping to get a little trip to Sydney out of it, but it didn't quite work that way. But <laughs> she still got to meet Belinda through this telecast, so that was really good. Mm. So she obviously did just have, um, she did have that interest in acting and, and possibly TV. Yeah. yeah. Well, she did get involved in a drama group and, um, like I say, a friend I'm seeing tomorrow... She was part of that drama group, so she did, and she did really well in Year Twelve in drama. I think she got an A. So she was a bit of an actress in her everyday life. She liked to sort of put on things, and yeah, so she really enjoyed that sort of thing. What did she look like, Sharon? Um, Emma, um, she had very long dark hair. She was quite short. As a teenager, she was probably a bit, as she went through puberty, she did put on a bit of weight. She was a bit chubby. And then as she got older, around 18, she started losing that weight because she was working. And, um, yeah, I remember her going to some gym for a little while and things like that. So she sort of slimmed down as she got older. Mm. But she was quite petite, um, and yeah, short like myself. And as I said, yeah, as she sort of grew older, she did sort of lose that sort of puberty weight that she put on for a few years and she had very big blue eyes really and just a really gorgeous smile like every photo you see of Emma it's just a big big smile, smile. and yeah. that's what everyone says to me they just will never forget her smile because it was just engaging oh she sounds she sounds beautiful and Hannah what's the difference in age group with her sister Hannah uh, Hannah and Emma are 15 years difference in age so um, she was very motherly when Hannah was born because at that stage I was married to Hannah's dad. I, I did have Emma as a single mum when I was younger mm-hmm. and then I married Hannah's dad and Emma lived with us, of course, and um, she just took on that role. I mean, a lot of the photos I have of Hannah as a baby and as a toddler, it's Emma holding her or on her first birthday. I'm taking the photo and Emma's holding Hannah had her first birthday cake at a party we had for her in the park. And they were, I've just got so many photos of them together because they just really bonded as sisters. But I think Emma took on a bit of the motherly role as well. She liked, I know she went and saw a couple of girlfriends once and put Hannah in a pram and made out that she was her <laughs> child. But they knew she was only joking. But yeah. she just said, oh, you know, but she just, they really did bond and really did love each other. So, in a way, Hannah grew up having two mums for a while, just sort of, you know, both of us sort of um, looking after, caring for her, doting on her. So she was very mother. I actually think she would have made a great mum 
when she had that chance to become a mother because um, I just knew how she was with her little sister. What a shame she was robbed of that, Sharon. When did things yeah. start to shift, would you say, for Emma? Um, well, she was working, she was living independently. In a, um, she had a nice flat in a nice area in Adelaide um, and she was going, she was actually managing a, a new video store that had opened and she, she had her own car and was driving there and um, she'd been, did a bit of travelling before that. She'd gone to Alice Springs to, and lived with my brother and sister-in-law for a little while and worked uh, in Alice just to get a bit of experience, get mm. out of Adelaide. So mm. when she came back to Adelaide, she got herself this um, flat at Burnside, which is a nice area, and she had this full-time job. And I think she was going, you know, to nightclubs with girlfriends because that's what you do when you're 20, 21. Yep, absolutely. And, um, yeah, she met a young man unfortunately introduced her to drugs yeah so that's I was told by a girlfriend that they were worried about her and I did confront her and she's trying to protect me and she was scared that um, she did start using some drugs and um, I just knew she was probably distanced herself a little bit but then I was looking at it like well she's an adult now she needs to talk to her mother every day mm. and um, I mean I did I was married and living quite a way away with my husband and Hannah, so it's not like we were just living around the corner and I could just catch up with her every few days. Mm. There was a distance involved. But um, we were always very close growing up and having a lot of contact constantly. So I found when things shifted and... But, you know, she wasn't contacting me quite as much, So I, but I just put it down to, well, she doesn't have to. She's an adult now. She's got her own life. She's doing her own thing, and, you know, I'm happy to talk to her once a week or something at that stage and just make sure she was okay. Yeah. So it was in the it was in her 20s that this the shift definitely happened? Uh, yeah, I'd say, um, yeah, I'd say around 21, 22 is when she met this particular person. Um, she was with him for about four years, but fortunately he ended up going to jail. So um, she then was on her own for a while. They say it um, often, so don't they, that you, you can't plan who your children are going to mingle with. You, no, you and can't. I've always said that uh, to a lot of people. It's who they meet along the way sometimes. Mm. It's not that you encourage them to take drugs. It's not part of something you do as a parent, of course, And but it's who your children can meet along the way and whether they're strong enough to resist that or how it is at the time, just it's the end thing or the cool thing to do. I mean... Um, yeah, it's just a decision that they make for themselves that isn't always the right decision, unfortunately. And I really believe, I just believe sometimes that it's easy they meet along the way. Were there any warning signs that she was in real trouble? Um, yes, because I'd start catching up with her and feeling that she wasn't, that she, yeah, that I just knew something was wrong. It was just, but I mean, I had had a friend say that they were worried about Emma. And um, when I confronted her, she sort of tried to lie, but then she sort of admitted to me that by that stage she sort of had a, an addiction because it was heroin. Right. And uh, it takes over pretty quick. And I remember her saying to me the first time it blows you away and then by the second time it's addicted, it's that quick. Mm. So, um, but she did seek help after a while, which we can talk about. 
Yeah, so, but um, I was pretty shocked when her girlfriend rang me saying she was really worried. I just thought, no, no, not Emma. Mm. <laughs> but um, you just don't want to believe that your child would go down that path because it's not how you installed values into them. And, and also, I think because when she was younger, she, you know, she did went out a couple of times and got drunk with her girlfriends, but she didn't seem to be showing. I thought we got through that difficult age of 17, 18, and, you know, she was on the right path. Mm. She'd gone past that age. Mm. But I think, unfortunately, drug addiction can hit any age. But back then I just thought if you can get your kids through that stage and they get into their early adulthood, maybe they're going to be okay. Yeah. What do you remember of the days leading up to the 26th? Uh, what I actually hadn't seen Emma for a few weeks. I saw her on a birthday in October. We had a family lunch. Now, what was that like, that family lunch? It was lovely to see her, but I knew something wasn't right. And um, this man that she'd been seeing for a few months turned up later, and I just um, didn't like him. I just got a horrible negative energy from him, and I just knew something wasn't right, and I confronted her in the toilet and said, you know, you need to get rid of this man. And she said, I know, Mum, but it's not that easy. Mm. Um, and so she'd been living in a house for three years in the city and then all of a sudden she got evicted. And so a couple of weeks before she died, she rang me and asked if she could come and stay with us. Yeah. And I said, um, yeah, of course you can come and stay. And... Um, you know, because I want her to be safe and, you know, I had, you know, she's my priority, she's my child. And you obviously so had that became, gut feeling that something was, was yeah, really wrong. Yeah, I was terribly wrong. And um, she said to me that he's got to come as well, this particular man. And I just said, no, no, I don't want him in our home. I don't want him near your sister. And she went, but you're my mum. And I said, that's right, I'm your mum, but I'm not his. And then she used the emotional blackmail that kids use now. And then she's done it before, oh, you don't love me. And I got really upset with her and I was at work, so I just hung up on her, which because she was getting emotional and, you know, using that emotional blackmail, which I just didn't, I couldn't do right at that moment, being at work. I worked for a judge in those days and he was near me and I just didn't want to get involved in that. Mm. So, and unfortunately, that is the last conversation that we had. And I had a lot of guilt after that once she was found dead. Yeah, it's just very hard to deal with. That's our last conversation. Oh, Sharon. But I've, um, you know, I've worked through that and I've had a lot of counselling and, you know, it wasn't what we were about because, you know, I have so many friends over the years who just said, Emma loved you so much and she didn't tell you a lot because she wanted to protect me, you mm, know. Mm. So she wasn't as open when she was going through problems because she did come off drugs, came home for nine months a few years before this happened and went to rehab and got totally off everything. So I had her at home for nine months and helped her through that. We had parent and child counselling and my father and I went to meetings for, you know, family of addicts and how to help them. And, and she was totally clean. It was really fabulous. And mm. she had a, got a great job with the state government in, at a TAFE institute and an admin job. And things were looking good for her there for a while. So she did try. She really wanted to come off it and she did so she wasn't on heroin in the last few years of her life 
Well, that's, you know, and, and you know, you must take comfort from the fact that you were trying to help her that last time you saw her at that family lunch. You were, oh, definitely. You were reaching out and you were trying to do your best and you did tell her that she could come and stay with you, uh, given that she was obviously feeling that she was in a bit of trouble. Um, her life was obviously marred by some volatile relationships towards the end and, and a lifestyle she was struggling to shake, yet nothing could possibly prepare you for the fact that you know, that the real danger she was in would inevitably lead to her death. That's right. And um, the only thing that I know, for the, the day before she died, she actually rang my father and said that she'd left this person and was staying at a house at Prospect. And um, Dad said there was another girl there. And I, I found out since it was a, someone that she knew who had his 16-year-old daughter staying for the weekend. And he told her, look, you can come and stay for a few days until you... Because this particular person had, um, the boyfriend had hit her and she decided to leave him. So she came and stayed at this other house. And, um, yeah. So she told Dad, she hadn't spoken to anyone in the family for about two or three weeks. And she told my dad, can you tell Mum I'll ring her tomorrow? Which tomorrow was the 26th of November. So I felt quite, when Dad rang me after work and told me that, he said, she's going to ring you tomorrow. She's... Yeah, I think she had a different phone number, but I had what, um, I did send her lots of, I did start ringing her after I didn't hear from her that next day, though, sending texts and asking, please ring me, Emma, please ring me. So, um, I did feel comforted that she did say to my father that she'd tell mum I'll ring her tomorrow. So, she had sort of forgiven me a bit and she realised that things weren't so good. And my thought was, well, I'm going to tell her when she rings me that she can now come and stay with us and get on her feet because she's she's actually made the decision to leave that person. And messed up in the right direction. That's right, and I'm yeah. willing to help her, but I just didn't feel comfortable with the other person being at my home. So for the young woman with the world yet to explore, Emma's life did take the worst possible turn. The last positive sighting of Emma Pawelski was on Saturday, the 26th of November, as she walked along Regency Road in Prospect, Adelaide, with her pet cat. She had left the home she'd been temporarily staying at. Where she was heading, no one knows, Sharon, only that she never made it. Well, that's right. So she was sighted about 9am, crossing a little side street by a man, and she did stand out because she because she had taken her cat to this home where she was going to stay for a few days, mm. and they said that they had been threatened <laughs> and they were worried and they asked her to leave. So she had to leave. She left a suitcase of clothes at that particular house, but she took her bag and the cat, and I'm, we're not sure. Though she did know someone in that area. We weren't sure if she was walking to their home. Mm. And I just wish she'd actually rung me, but apparently she'd been asked to leave the prospect home at five in the morning, so she probably thought I'd better not ring my mother at five. I, I just wish she had, though. I would have gone straight and got her. So, um, yeah. yeah, so... When she didn't ring me on that particular day, by that evening I started trying to ring her and the phone was just ringing out and I was leaving messages and things like that. We will leave it there for today. Please join us for our next episode of New Idea Investigates where we pick up the story with Sharon McKell. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.